Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. Today, I interview Annie Fryman, and Annie is an amazing individual who helped Scott Weiner, who is a California state politician. He's a main person in the California State Senate who's pushed through a bunch of housing legislation. And Annie is the behind the scenes on all of that. So we get an amazing behind the scenes view on how to create abundant housing and how to balance all these different uh, you know, stakeholders while also pushing through. And she turned uh, the average time to push through units from nine years to 60 days, from nine years to two months. It's amazing. And we also chat about her work with Abodu, which is this new... Um, ADU startup, an accessory dwelling unit startup, and she's talking about how they are just on the ground implementing some of the laws that she made and helping people just really push through housing, 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 and impl- actually implement the the laws that she helped uh, create. It's an amazing interview. Annie is great, and you can just really see how abundant housing might be in our future through some of the playbooks that Annie has. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and bye. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Reese Show. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and this is my world. This is literally my house, actually. Um, <laughs> um, I believe this century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world, and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. So with that, I'm excited to chat with Annie Freiman today. Annie started her career in architecture and then transitioned to policy um, and led housing, land use, and transportation policy for the California Senator Scott Weiner. Scott Weiner? Okay, Wiener, great. Wiener, yeah. great. Uh, she now works as the director of cities for the startup Abodu, uh, which is a full stack service for creating ADUs, these accessory dwelling units kind of like in your backyard. Annie, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And as you can see in the background here, we have, there's Annie's bike. You know, so she she biked here. This is um the like the uh, floor level of my house, which is this cool community space. And we thought, why not use it here and have the nice uh, plants in the background? Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so Annie has this great um, background in terms of policy and also the tech side. And so the goal for our listeners today is to really understand, like, how can we create abundant housing? How can we create these better cities? We know that there's this housing crisis. What should we do about it? And you've been working on this, so we're going to try to learn from you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, specifically learning about the role of policy versus startups and then also the role of ADUs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as bonus context for you and our listeners is that Root has this project, Civic Abundance, which is creating infrastructure and coordination to help all cities thrive. And we have this like civic dashboard that we're trying out. So it's like, that's, that's kind of where we are framing towards this. Mm-hmm. So with that... Let's start at a high level. And Annie, could you tell us, like, what is your dream vision for what cities should look like, especially around housing? Uh, great question. I think Look is doing a lot of work there, especially mm. as someone with my background in architecture and planning. Mm. I think that independent of the aesthetics of what cities look like, right, like the skyline, um, mm. I think that cities should work in a way where people have the mobility to change their life situation as they see best and most fit for them. Hmm. Um, And I think that that can look like a lot of different things in a lot of places, Um, right? Like I, 
I grew up in central Kentucky, right? In a university city. We're surrounded by a lot of farmland and rural areas. And you can have that vision of people having mobility and ability to change their life situation as they see fit for them and their families um, in rural areas and in cities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think in terms of a San Francisco that I would like to see mm. or a city like San Francisco, yeah. um, I think we need to move past the 20th century fetishization <laughs> of the single family home. Um, I think that we need much newer buildings, not just because of density, but also because of getting our communities up to par with modern building safety. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really big thing that I think often goes unnoticed because it's hard to see and look at. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have a lot of old buildings in San Francisco, including really low density ones that are not going to be safe in an earthquake. Um, that have lead paint, that have asbestos, that have knob and tube wiring, which is a huge fire safety risk. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to, yeah, build cities that have both the density of supporting small businesses, good public infrastructure, good public services, and all of the positive parts of density and people living closely in community with each other. And also people being able to change their life situation without abandoning and leaving their own community. Mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. bringing that back to this fetishization of single family homes, which is really the best way that I can describe it. You have people whose life situations change where they go from owner to renter or renter to owner, their financial situations change, their family structure changes. And if the only way that you can fit your needs is to move 10, 20, 30, 40 miles away from your community just because there's that one change in your life, that's not the kind of city I want to live in. Mm -hmm. cool. um, and so I, I answered that a little bit stepped away from the what cities look like yeah. Um, yeah. because I think that there's often a fixation on the kind of like, what is the aesthetic vibe that we're going mm -hmm. for? When really I'm much more interested in how does the system of a city work and housing market work and how does that actually impact the real human parts of our community? 100%. Yeah. And, and, and thank you for, yeah, it's not really about the look. It's like, oh, is it green or blue or what? No, yeah. it's like, okay, no, it's the... Is it um, tall, short? <laughs> tall. Tall is the answer. It should be dense, you know? Um, but I, I do like what you're saying, which is there's a... And the funny thing is I'm hearing what you're talking mm -hmm. about it's almost just like there's there's kind of a simple playbook that people in other places around the world have done, which mm -hmm. is like you make dense cities, you know, and, and then they're nice and they're mm -hmm. walkable and everything's six stories and there's all the businesses on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of the like when I imagine Barcelona or Paris or some of these like walkable cities, is that kind of where you would want us to go? Or is, you know, that like, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, there's probably some not to be too reductive, but math problem out there, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, what is the critical density of households that we need to support um, well-funded parks, schools, libraries, yeah. thriving small businesses, yeah. and good infrastructure. And that is going to have very different transportation habits and housing density than we have right now. Yeah, exactly. um, And so I think like, to be more concrete, it's probably much closer to that six story mm -hmm. with, you know, retail on the bottom. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges though, is that like, you know, most of our listeners are going to be in the United States and particularly in cities in the United States yeah. or those immediate metro areas. And we are retrofitting suburbia right now. And that's that's its own challenge where we're not in the next 5, 10, 15 years in all of the places where we have housing problems and where people need to improve their like 
urban environment or their community environment. Um, we're starting from a lot of really, really, really underdeveloped, but not vacant land. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, like a little bit of a segue into where ADUs fit in this picture. But, um, you know, for every east side of San Francisco you have, mm-hmm. you have a hundred um, outer east space, yeah. right? Or Marin counties or, um, you know, Gilroy's and all of these places that because of the time in American history that they were developed and also the infrastructure that was being invested around them. Um, we're not easily going to get to the default building style being six stories and retail <laughs> on the bottom yeah. absent some massive natural disaster, yeah. which yeah. is like a sad We don't want truth. that either. We don't want that. We're not, we're not arguing for that either. Yeah. yeah. That, but that's, that's actually, I like what you said there, which is, I mean, there's the 20th, the, the 20th century fetish, fetishization of the single family home. Mm-hmm. And then, and that is, I really like what you said there about we have land that's underdeveloped. It's at like 10% of what it's actually should be doing, Mm -hmm. but it's not vacant. You know, (laughs) if it was vacant, then we could do stuff with it, but you're going to have to bulldoze to build new things, which is, you know, hard. Um, and then it also makes me think of, yeah, we're retrofitting our existing situation onto like we're retrofitting both the atoms. Um, but we're also retrofitting that kind of vision of the future. And I'm Mm -hmm. just reminded of my, um, brother and sister-in-law went to Barcelona over, this last winter. And for them, it was the first time being in like a dense city. And so they thought, oh, Denver's all good, blah, blah, blah. They have their single family home. <laughs> if whatever. only we knew. Exactly. And then they went there and they're like, wow, this is so walkable. Everything's so cool, blah, blah, blah. And then when they came back, they're like, this is crazy. We're driving so mm-hmm. much. So I think that like it's part of this is the atoms and part of this is like the visions of what society can actually look like. It's mm-hmm. like, no, it could be like 10 X different than it is right now in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also think that like, you know, the world has long had thriving societies and economies that long predated the automobile. Yeah. Um, and I think we often forget that and see that to be a massive sacrifice and trade off that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. But if you really see the cities and communities and cultures, all over the world, not even in just Western Europe, yeah. which I think is most familiar for us to look at exactly. and travel. Yeah. Um, you see that the default is much closer to that than it is what we have in 90% of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think that uh, you can kind of come from a blank slate perspective where we had this very specific, weird automobile thing for the last 50 or hundred mm-hmm. years. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't need to be <laughs> the default state. It also makes me think of, yeah, the reason why I mostly use the Western countries is because for American people, when I tell them like, oh, let's be as dense as Tokyo or whatever, they're like, oh, I'm scared. Like that's <laughs> where you're like, oh, we can be as dense as Paris. They're like, oh, Paris, you yeah. know, like, um, which is its own issue. But yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of really incredible examples too. Like I think particularly in um, Latin America, mm-hmm. like in South America, there's a lot of really strong lessons around urbanism that I think we can learn mm-hmm. um, from cities there. I think that's also an interesting connection to my background, for example, in architecture and the extension into planning as well, is that a lot of people get into that field, particularly as, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, right, in terms of what you study and what you're pursuing with this idea that you are the painter on a blank canvas, and this is purely a creative and artistic exercise. And I think that one of the things that practically you learn in those fields very early on and that also makes it more um, challenging and stimulating, frankly, um, is that you're never working with a blank canvas. Less than 1% of architecture and planning projects are properly a blank canvas. It's much more understanding the 
tangled web in which one specific site project scope mm-hmm. that is complex, imperfect, has some history to it, and also has some parts of it that work really well, but many that do not. Uh-huh. How do you solve that problem? Yeah. And how do you make it better, not worse, in more ways, not fewer? Mm-hmm. And how do you adapt it and modernize it to the things that have changed since it was initially established or last adapted? Yeah. Um, you can think of that in terms of historic buildings. You can yeah. think of that in terms of vacant parcels in the middle of a city, sur- mm-hmm. surrounded by different resources and communities and services and businesses and all these things. You can also think of it in terms of you have an existing imperfect suburban city or suburban yeah. town that you need to accommodate double the population for, yeah. right? What needs to change in order to move an outdated and no longer fulfilling its purpose for the community there now what needs to change and how do you use your creative problem solving? And that means you don't just have to learn about transportation engineering Mm -hmm. and infrastructure financing, but you also need to learn about how does the community use this right now? What are their habits? What are the things that are working? How does that fit into broader macroeconomic trends? Mm -hmm. Um, How does that fit into our climate future? Mm -hmm. How does that fit into all of these Mm -hmm. different components and what is the future that we want to see, but also what, what problems are we trying to solve and for who? And I think that that's like the real cool part about architecture and to a greater extent city planning is this idea that whether you're starting with an empty parking lot in downtown San Francisco that you want to kind of have a highest and best use for, or you have a really, really low density underdeveloped, but not vacant, suburban city mm-hmm. that needs to accommodate double, triple its population yeah. within that land area in a certain period of time. How do you do that? Yeah. And, yeah. and so much of it is a people problem too. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, how do you get the folks excited? How, what are they already using it for? So with mm-hmm. that, let me, I mean, a lot of your work with policy is, uh, it's all people problems. So tell us a little bit more, um, Hey, thank you for pushing for abundant housing with, <laughs> with Scott or my friend, Scott, um, your actual friend, Scott. Um, and, um, tell us more about some of the bills that you were able to pass through and why they were important. And did they actually create more housing? You know? <laughs> so the great answer is yes. Okay, and good. I yeah. still maniacally track it. Okay, um, good. so <laughs> yes. great, 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 great. many, many years passed. Um, it's a little extracurricular of mine. Yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, so I joined the state legislature working for Senator Scott Wiener mm-hmm. in December 2016. I'd previously been in local government with him for a fraction of the year before, small and relatively insignificant period of time. Um, and one thing that I'll lead up to on talking about our first bill is at least the storyline. And I started out working in architecture in San Francisco and found it increasingly baffling Mm -hmm. how we say out of one side of our mouth that we need better urbanism, uh, better transit, more housing, more affordability. I was a, you know, previously a 22 year old renter making $28,000 a year in San Francisco. And it was just, I didn't understand because when you actually become the person who's getting building permits, they make it the hardest thing in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can be fighting to permit a duplex on a site zoned for duplexes for seven years. And that, it it was just, I I didn't understand. I was like, I've got to be missing something here. (laughs) And fast forwarding, I I guess in summary, you learn on that side, right? As a practitioner, all the Mm. things that are broken because you're on the receiving end of them. Like I could write out for you the flow chart and say, this is every single point 
where we're going to have to have that really difficult friction, conversation with friction, our client yeah. about um, Annie's been camping out at the building department for four days trying to negotiate this permit and we're just not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Annie has been canvassing the neighborhood trying to make sure no one appeals and yet this is where we are. And this is all not just allowed, but in some ways encouraged mm-hmm. by the laws that we have. So I, you know, was ripping my hair out yeah. and like moonlighting as a community organizer and just like furious trying to understand this yeah. and then made this lateral move into policy. Uh, sort of bizarre. I thought it was temporary at the time. And the cool part of this was that our very first year in Sacramento, that was the problem that we were tackling. Yeah, it was cool. this very specific, what procedural hurdles are actually making projects better and making city government work better mm-hmm. and which procedural hurdles are making it work worse yeah. and getting us further from actually executing on our goals. Yeah. And how do we map them all out, understand the history of them, understand the politics of them, yeah. understand all the different, like, again, that web of forces at play and how do we just redesign a new solution? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 20, I think it was like December, 2016, we introduced this bill. It was called SB 35. And it was specifically tackling the, if you are in a community that has an identified housing shortage yeah. based on all of these other metrics that have existed since the 70s, which we later fixed because mm-hmm. um, they were imperfect themselves. But if you're in a community in California that has an identified housing shortage, how do we make it such that your system is not stacked against building housing and rather the things that hold up people like me or my bosses from getting that housing built at the level we need, um, that that's easier than it is, right? And what that ended up looking like in a solution was you kind of get categorized as a city every Mm -hmm. four years in the Mm -hmm. system that we built. And the state says, you're on the, you're doing fine on housing, keep doing what you're doing list. Mm -hmm. You're on the, you're doing a really atrocious job at building affordable housing, but you're doing an okay job at building market rate housing, or you're bad at everything. (laughs) Which like, most people are bad at everything. 97% of California cities at that first evaluation were in one of those last two categories. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like... I can double check this. I think it was like close to 50% were in that last category where it's just you're falling short on everything. And that was based on imperfect and conservative estimates. Yeah. (laughs) And so what SB 35 did, yeah, is we said there's going to be a rigid timeline between like 30 and 180 days. So one to six months, depending on if it's a five unit project or a 5,000 unit project, Mm -hmm. right? There's some tiering there. Um, You can have no appeals, negotiations, or kind of like, this is our rule, but we're moving the goalpost and actually it's not our rule once there's a project proposed. A lot of the standards that make it such that that negotiation and appeal process and that discretion, frankly, is um, cemented in the process. Those are taken out. If it's not a black and white objective criteria for true, false, one, zero, you're compliant, you're non-compliant, city can't enforce it. Yeah, great. And they're required to approve it within that very, very, very short time frame. And so what was really cool about this is that, uh, and also actually I'll I'll cut back. The trade-off there though, was that we had to define what should be eligible Mm -hmm. for this independent of the affordable housing mix or the market rate housing mix. Um, what qualified for this? What made a good project we wanted to see more of yeah. versus a bad project or yeah. a mediocre project or an unremarkable project that we didn't necessarily want to prop up? Yeah. And so, and also, what are all of the things, going back to that analogy about retrofitting existing imperfect conditions, um, I think there's a strong corollary here in policy and law where it's, why do all of these things exist? 
whether it's CEQA, historic and design review, neighbor appeals, all of those concrete things that can and do hold up projects. But what ways are they actually serving an interest that we still agree with in some way? Um, should we allow people to really build Historical, all the cities? Yeah. Should, but also, like, should we really allow and encourage and streamline cities to build um, housing on a toxic waste site? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm, not. Mm-hmm. And so if you take out a level of review, what are you going to replace it with? And that was really the the art of it. It was not just stripping, but it was replacing. Yeah, and how do yeah. we do it in a way that's modern, that fits our needs in terms of both speed and quality and integrity of dignified housing? Um, and... The outcome of that was that projects that are um, compliant with the existing zoning, that are compliant with sort of affordable housing requirements, that have much more oversight on how construction workers are treated and paid Mm -hmm. on site, right? So that we don't get ourselves into promoting like exploitative situations for workers, Mm -hmm. that there were certain environmental criteria that if you didn't meet the black and white objective, true or false criteria, you were just kicked out of eligibility to make sure that we weren't promoting those projects and we're actually promoting the ones that are safer. And if you were in an infill area, right, with the idea being we want to promote more development close to city centers rather than greenfields out and further away. Mm-hmm. And so all of that's to say, like in the first even few years, there were many thousands of units of housing mm-hmm. in California that were permitted through that program. Mm-hmm. So here's a concrete, uh, specific example of how this worked in practice. Um, there's a really well-known prominent affordable housing developer in California. I won't name them, but they're kind of a household name. Um, they do collaborations on market rate projects. They don't obstruct other types of housing. And, but they primarily build 100% low-income affordable housing. They came back to us after a couple of years and said, you come hell or high water have to keep this bill alive because, and make sure that it doesn't get watered down. Because we have seen and done analysis that our affordable housing projects in California, which had totaled probably over 1,000 units just in this few-year period at that point, our permitting time has gone down from eight and a half years to 60 days. Yeah. And one of the things that was cool that I learned about this, just doing this work, is that that does not just mean that you get the housing eight years sooner. It actually is much more powerful than that in that that means that that person that is trying to invest their money in dense, affordable housing in places that need it is not paying eight years of interest on land Mm -hmm. that they have no uh, money coming in for. They're not paying for big billable hour in all the different forms that that takes Mm -hmm. to do the unnecessary maintenance that's not improving a project, whether it's your lawyers or your finance people or your land use consultants or all of that for that eight-year period. And further, to secure your affordable housing financing, you can say with 100% certainty, we're going to get this permit within 60 days. We know what the materials costs are. We know what the construction labor available is. And we also know with a lot of predictability when we can start construction and they can sequence it much more efficiently. Yeah. Absent that type of intervention, those projects frequently lose their financing because they can't um, guarantee that. And so that was just, again, like a concrete example, not just in the how many units, which like last count, God, probably in the like closer to 10,000 and 5,000 units last I checked, which was a while ago. Um, have been created. Have been created cool. through, like permitted through that law. Yeah, but sense. also... Many of those units actually would never have happened otherwise, mm-hmm. and a small subset of them would, but 10, 15, 20 years later. Yeah. And so that's kind of the the divide there. It also, independent of the numbers game, 
it showed that there was a path forward mm -hmm. to being saying yes to new things, right? And I think that that's like just a lot once, of the, just once, a lot of the theme of like kind of, you know, the different types of work that you follow mm -hmm. is saying yes to new things and how can we fix this and how can we modernize it? And let's just not be defeatist about there's this old thing that's a relic of the mid sixties to the mid eighties mm -hmm. that we keep doing because we don't have an alternative, uh -huh. yeah. right? And that's how so many of our government processes work. And this was an example of like, no, we can be proactive about making environmental review work better. Yeah. And also have better outcomes and also not obstruct housing. We can make it such that it's actually financially attractive for a developer to pay their construction workers more, not less, mm -hmm. right? We can make it such that it's actually better for your future residents and makes your project more attractive to not have parking rather than have parking they're not going to use. And so there's all of these different pieces. I think it was both, it got a bunch of housing units concretely mm -hmm. permitted, which mm -hmm. is so cool, mm -hmm. but also it showed that there was a path forward to, yeah. to approaching housing in this way in a way no one had been successful in doing for decades. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it, it happened a couple of years ago too, like almost five years ago or whatever, mm -hmm. which is great because I think it's also like now it feels like, you know, Gimbyism or, you know, building stuff, abundance economies, whatever you might want to call mm -hmm. it is much more in the, um, in the progressive, in the, excuse me, um, <laughs> ah, uh, much more in the progressive, like, um, scheme of mind. But back then it was like, no, you had to kind of, this was the way to get it through was to say, Hey, look, it's still good on environmental stuff. Mm -hmm. It's still good on affordability. It's Check still good on all those things. And then like, it's hard to say no to that when you're like, look, it's making all these things better and it'll build more housing. Yeah. So I have, yeah. I have way back in my Google drive somewhere yeah. this, like the first month or two that we were working on this policy. Cause we knew like high level we wanted to accomplish. And it was cool working on it on the government side after having been the receiving end of all the ways that it was broken. Yeah. And I literally put together this spreadsheet with a million tabs and a million rows that was like every possible interest that could oppose a certain provision yeah. of this and that had killed previous efforts to do similar things. And it was, what part of it are they attacking? What point are they making? Mm -hmm. Is this a point based in a value that we do or don't disagree mm -hmm. with? And then what is a potential solution? And that was everything from like small town mayors, big town mayors, yeah. labor unions, conservationist environmentalists, urbanist environmentalists, yeah. all the different categories. And then it's like this really neat, almost like, I, I hate to use the misuse the word, but like engineering problem. Yeah. Of like yeah. how do we problem solve and like optimize in a way yeah. all of these different things. And like piss off everyone about equally so that no one is like on the losing end. Yeah. Um, cause if you give everyone everything they want, you have a bill that doesn't work. Yeah. And so that was sort of like the, 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 the political dance and choreography that was very load balancing all the different, it things. was yeah. very yeah. fragile yeah. and almost died many times. So oh. I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> it's amazing too. Cause it just shows a sign of like our vetocracy that we exist in where it's like, everybody has so many weight. Everybody is, everybody and their mother has a veto point. And so you have to make sure that on that spreadsheet that literally for probably for 150 or 25 rows or however many it was that everybody like feels like their values or whatever they're like they're not losing like you can't and someone have, didn't yeah. win more than they did yeah. that was the thing uh, uh, got it. everybody's <laughs> a competitor um, so, so, so tell me about the so it, it's cool that it made ten thousand. i guess there's like there's but like in some ways i'm like okay ten thousand units uh -huh. like the skeptical side of me is like 
that's nothing. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> so is there maybe maybe this would be a good way to talk about the other uh, like um, bill that you introduced, or maybe is that is that a reasonable complaint from me? I'm not saying that you did yeah. do good work. Yeah, I like, mean, I think uh, that, and again, like I mean, maybe the numbers are higher, maybe they're yeah. lower. I don't want to overspeak. I could probably name projects that would total up to ten thousand off the top of my head. Yeah, so maybe ten to twenty thousand. Yeah, and and the state's tracking it, but imperfectly. Yeah. Um, I will say that one of the things that fed into this like life cycle of like us iterating on policy over several years was SB 35 happened and there were many critiques, many of which we didn't agree with, but the two that we did agree with that we just didn't have the power with and that lot of change, but they were fair is that if the project has to be um, compliant with whatever your underlying zoning is in a way it reinforces bad zoning, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's no negotiation or like wiggle room to do something better on a project by project basis. The second is that the system that is used to determine whether a city is or is not in a housing shortage Mm -hmm. and to what degree and for what types of housing, that system is called RENA and the housing element. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use, I'll say housing quota for mm-hmm. purposes of today. Yeah. The housing quota. Regional housing needs assessment. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, the housing quota system in California um, rooted back in the 1970s had a very different purpose than it now has today, has been politically co-opted for a lot of different reasons and is ent- was up until 2018 entirely divorced from reality, mm-hmm. right? You would have like, we have housing need in this city. We have housing need in this city. We don't really need housing in this city because there's a, a massive out-migration, right, to the other two. Mm. But then you would have council members, because it was all a political process, say, hey, we'll help pay for that you know, bus system or that social service if you take our housing need, even though we're Beverly Hills uh-huh. or we're Atherton or we're some city that very much needs housing and hasn't built for decades. So it was, like, it was divorced from reality. It was super political. It was the best thing we had. Again, so go into this idea of like retrofitting laws. How do we figure out a better way to do this? Yeah. And so zoning and uh, quotas were the things. Zoning and quotas place. were the yeah. two things. Yeah. So we came back the next year, and yeah. I won't go on a thing. We could do a whole podcast with this, but we came back with SB 827 mm-hmm. and SB 828. Mm-hmm. And that was the fork in the road that was us responding to the critiques we agreed with to sort of both fix problems generally, but also make SB 35 stronger. Yeah. SB 27 was a statewide preemption on zoning near transit and later jobs. Mm-hmm. And it was like a huge tide shift made international news. Mm-hmm. I didn't sleep for probably four months. Um, <laughs> and it ultimately failed, but changed a lot of the conversation mm-hmm. nationally on mm-hmm. how cities and states balance uh, municipal zoning. Okay. The second one, though, is what I want to focus on. And it's the housing quota system. So mm-hmm. that's SB 828. And mm-hmm. basically... I probably for four months just put my head down trying to unravel every single possible lever, both in statute, guidelines, informal bureaucratic norms, and the way things have always been. Mm-hmm. Um, about how did we get to this point where these numbers are not just political, but they're allowed to be. And in some ways, they're encouraged to be. And what incentivizes that? And we figured out kind of like, okay, here's how the math problem is required to work by law. Mm-hmm. Here are the processes. Here are the appeals and what they could do and what they actually do in practice. Here are the people who have power in that. Here are all the different people that touch it. And I won't go into the details of like which denominator we changed mm-hmm. and what process we came down, but essentially the outcome of that bill was that that housing quota system 
essentially completely took out the politics from it mm. and actually put the power back in the hands of folks who are identifying, we need housing where there's a really high um, housing cost burden. So yeah. wages compared to housing costs. We need housing where we have low density, segregated communities mm-hmm. that are way, 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 way higher income mm-hmm. and that folks cannot actually move to from like a fair housing point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, they cannot afford to move where there's good schools, good air quality, all of that. Yeah. Um, We're going to limit the ability of local politicians and regional politicians to um, intervene in that process and kind of get their stamp on it for electoral reasons rather than reasons that help our housing situation, which are often very divorced. We're going to coordinate it with um, census data on overcrowding, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a lot of overcrowding in your community, that's a good sign, that's objective, and that's census data that you need more housing. So Mm -hmm. all of these different things went into it. And in addition to cities like Beverly Hills having huge numbers of housing designated to them as individual cities, you also had entire regions that had double or triple the total amount of housing that needed to be divvied up among their different cities through this new methodology than you did before. And so that is one of those things that, you know, SB35 concretely made it such that in a very, very short period of time, Projects that would have taken eight years are now, you know, up and running or permitting or through the unpredictable part of the phase in a few years, because even that kind of bill takes a long time to roll out. This is a really cool effort, SB 28, because on top of um, triggering more cities into SB 35, so a much bigger scope of projects can benefit from that than the small fraction that does now. You also have, in terms of long-term land use planning, last I checked, like, over half a million new units in just like one or two regions of California that are required over an eight-year period Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than would have been absent that intervention. Um, And so that's also just one of those really, really neat things where you're like, if you step away a couple levels of abstraction and then get really, really technical about what are the underlying systems that amplify all the other ones that we have, right? So what compels Mm upzoning, fixing Rena? What compels streamlining? fixing Rena. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What takes a lot of the local and regional yeah. politics mm-hmm. out of housing development? Yeah. If you want developers out of politics, take politics out of development. <laughs> like it's a pretty clear relationship there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, wow. Fix Rena. And so yeah. all of those different things, Rena is going to be an SBA 28. That housing quota system is going to be mm-hmm. so interesting to see roll out over the next mm-hmm. decade because there's some regions that are like starting next year. The Bay Area started last year. We're in the middle of all of this right now. And I think last I heard Newsom's account is that in total, they're estimating like 3 million new units of housing will be compelled to have significant upzoning and streamlining as a result of that intervention. And that's a huge number. Huge. Yeah, you know, I love that. 10K, not very many, 500K a ton, and then 3 million a ton. And yeah. so I think that is, um, that's amazing. It makes me think of a couple things. A, I love the... Um, it, well, a, it sounds like you have a special sauce, um, Annie, which is that you can, and this is something I honestly think that you should maybe outsource to the fans, um, which is um, <laughs> say like, hey, here's how I got through and just like, because you have these, you do these amazing spreadsheets, you do these, you're able to do this planning process where you look at all these different things, you say how, it's a theory of change map, it's a kind of a constraints map, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, and you say, this is how this is going to get through. Um, and you were able to do it with these two really important bills, and so I just... Hearing that is that I think that's like a really that's a superpower, which is really cool. Um, and I think you should write a blog post on it. Okay. 
just giving you some more work. Um, so, but, but seriously, because I do think that would be, I think a lot of focus. It's, uh, yeah, so that's amazing. So thank you for doing that. Um, a lot of credit to the actual senator. There's, there's, a, whole, there's a senator that you got a team, you know, there's, it's a lot of people, but yeah, totally. Took a village. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that that is cool. The other thing that I think is, um, yeah, it's amazing how much, uh, what you said about getting the politics out of development is so it reminds me of gun control stuff you know it was recently the shooting i mean there were two shootings and there were probably many shootings in america mm-hmm. recently um and the issue is that we're just politics is so much a part of the system where it's like and and once you have politics and it just it, all for you know 90 percent of cases it seems like it's not necessarily a great thing and so you almost want and then there's some negatives of more technocratic systems you're like hey here's the number you know the math did the thing you need 3,500 houses, Berkeley, but, or Beverly Hills, rather, but that still is, um, it just feels like a powerful move to make Mm -hmm. in general, which is to reduce the constraint space, or or the space that politics can fight in, Mm -hmm. and say, you can fight over here about something not important, but don't fight about kids getting killed in schools, don't fight about housing, don't fight, Mm -hmm. like, these are things that you're not allowed to, like, you know, spew at each other on Twitter about. Yeah. So, with that... I mean, uh, I think, I think, too, there is, there's an interesting point there, and that this is something that you know, most all communities are grappling with in one way or another and levels of government, right, federal all the way down to hyper local is like we do live in a democracy, right? Like people should have some say in how our government is run. The question is, do you believe in representative democracy or do you believe in direct democracy and where on that gradient are you, right? Because you could elect city council, state senator, state assembly member, mayor, all those people and say, we voted for you based on your competency and your values that are aligned with mine. Now go to your job for four years and we will reevaluate whether we should fire you in four years, right? That is representative democracy. Direct democracy is we elected our elected officials, but actually I have veto power and actually I can stop them from doing their job and the things that they're good at at every single Thursday board of supervisors or planning commission meeting. And at a certain point you're like, why do we have politicians? Like... I had a, a person who was sort of a mentor and at one point a coworker early on when I started working in policy and in government who said something that's always really, really stuck with me as kind of a lesson. And he said, you're going to meet two types of people in this world. Um, you're going to meet people who do po- policy as a means to an end of winning politics and power. And you're going to meet people who put up with mastering politics as a means to an end of really accomplishing policy outcomes. And those are, those are two types of people, right? Are you putting out policy because it'll get you a good press release and it's kind of vaporware, but you get a press cycle and it's what your voters want to see on a flyer, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually change people's lives. And that's politics. Um, is the end goal, right? Power is the end goal. Politics is the end goal. You're also going to meet people. And I would put um, Senator Scott Wiener in this category and a lot of sort of the world and ecosystem that he's built around him, which I really, really respect, which is we're good at politics, right? We know how to work with the press. We know how to work mm-hmm. with legislators. Mm-hmm. We know how to put tweet. Co- we know how to tweet. We know how to put, co- but it's also like, we know how to put coalitions together. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. know how to yeah. like, yeah. we know how to do that maneuvering to execute, yeah. but the end goal is always strong policy that will be durable and that will improve people's lives and be an improvement on what we have now. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, we're guided by that North store of policy and politics is the means to the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that like, that was always a lesson that really stuck with me is because he, this, this mentor of mine was like, you're going to hit a lot of forks in the road mm-hmm. where you'll see people go kind of one team to the other. Mm-hmm. And we really believe just as like, 
our own ethos of how we approach this work, that we want to be guided by strong policy that improves people's lives. And as a result of that, we have to kind of put up with and get good at the politics part. Love it. Um, Yeah. It reminds me of, um, and and part of it for me thinking from like a tech perspective too, is like, yeah, we've, we've shifted back in the day. There may have been a lot more private policy happening where people were working on this kind of stuff, like making policy. And then now we've shifted to this like public performance reality Mm -hmm. where, or, or this politics reality. It's just like, and that one where these people are just, it's all about signaling instead yeah. of the actual impact. So yeah. um, let's let's transition actually to um, Abodu. And I always, it's, it's Abodu, not Adobu, right? Correct. It's That's Abodu. A, I've like, had many a cover letter misspell it, which is yeah. always like a question if I should disqualify it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, um, so it's Abodu, like yes. an abode, like yes. your humble abode. Correct. Um, so exactly. tell us about um, Abodu and making ADUs and also a little bit why you switched from the world of policy into the world of like startups. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll start there because I think it's good transition. Um, so I worked in local government in San Francisco for less than a year. Um, the board of supervisors followed Scott up less to than a year. Is that, less oh. than a year in, in local okay, government, okay, in city yes. hall. Yeah, and then like, followed the Senator up to Sacramento when he got elected was there for four years. Great, uh, so great, kind yeah. of like yeah, four and a half, maybe in total in government and policy. Um, Honestly, the real answer is like, I loved that job, like loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, Senator Wiener is such a tremendous boss, really empowered us to like pursue creative and super bold and ambitious things. And then had the gratification of being successful at them, right? Dude works harder than anyone else. Like, um, And I would say there were two things for me. One was just from a personal perspective, I didn't want to be in Sacramento forever. And also the type of job and role and work that I was entrusted with in Senator Wiener's office, it's hard to replicate elsewhere. And Mm -hmm. so there's not really a clear career path staying in Sacramento in state government. Um, Most of the ways you advance in your career are getting further from that work, not closer. Um, And so that was kind of a challenge that I, I knew was brewing at some point. I didn't want to live in Sacramento forever. I wanted my community was back in the Bay area. I'd lived here before. Um, So there was that component, in all honesty. The other part that I think is relevant to the substantive decision-making about where I went next is that we'd passed these laws in 2017. We'd passed these laws in 2018. We went back on them and we went back to re-pursue different versions of them in 2019, 2020. A lot of other wins along the way, particularly around transportation. So I, I caught myself spending more and more and more of my time trying to help maintain the, again, that policy-oriented, outcomes-oriented, how are we achieving this, by realizing there's the recognize the problem, fix the problem on paper, and then stage three is fix the problem in real life, right? And nothing, it doesn't mean anything on paper if no one knows how to use it, if it's not legally defensible, meaning there's holes in how the statute's written and the courts rule against it. And also if the government side, whether it's local government or state departments or all these other folks are kind of like, waffling at like, wait, what exactly are our regulations and how are we interpreting this? And like, do we have the right resources for this and all of that? So I made this like high level decision. Okay. I want to, um, come back to the Bay area at at the end of the Senator's four-year term, which felt like a good kind of bookend. And I want to focus the next chapter of my career on the implementation of state laws from that period when there was really this like four or five year blitz of housing legislation, right? Like national papers were talking about like, what is in the water in California? They keep changing all this stuff. Um, And so that was the really interesting phase to me. It's like, how do we, we, we killed ourselves accomplishing all these things on paper. Let's see the project through. Like, let's really make sure it works to the point that it makes people's lives better. Um, It's not just a thing we can brag about because we changed Uh it on paper. uh So I was actually really open-minded. I was like, okay, I could go back to city government, 
regional government, nonprofit, advocacy, mm-hmm. um, private sector. Mm-hmm. Like they were all, it's kind of field agnostic in yeah. terms of how do I solve the state law implementation problem yeah. in a way that I'm good at and care about and can secure a job that's, you know, I, I enjoy doing and I'm good at, frankly, in the Bay Area, which is there's more than enough people working in housing here. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I was juggling considerations from all of those different places. Um, and also this was during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after giving the Senator my 12 months notice, nice. uh, that it was last year. Nice. Um, and I ended up getting connected with this tiny eight person company, um, in the Bay area that was, had literally sprung up in response to a suite of these state law changes. They, specifically their their business case was these laws are now changed this is a brand new industry that was not existing before and we want to be on the forefront of it and doing it better than anyone else and that was a bodu uh building adus which is essentially backyard homes as well as navigating this kind of new and growing world not new but it's new how much it's growing um of like prefab housing Mm -hmm. um and so coupling the cool things that you can do with factory built housing and the cool things that you can do with ADU law, Mm -hmm. that was like almost like a new frontier, Mm -hmm. right? Of like, what can a business really do in this space? Um, I was also really excited about it just given my background in architecture and structural engineering. And like, I had always thought that I would have to make a sacrifice and pick one or the other when it comes to like, am I close to construction sites? And am I doing that type of work and working with plan sets or am I doing policy? And so this was neat that I got to actually converge, not diverge on that. Um, and use my policy chops, frankly, um, to help folks that were on the construction site. Right. And to actually help the practitioners doing that. And so, yeah. So Abodu, I ended up, you know, working there. I started working on how can we make our permitting process faster mm-hmm. um, in part by collaborating with various local governments and permitting agencies and authorities cool. at like a systems level. Cool. Um, so there's a team at Abodu that handles the permitting from like, we have a customer, we've signed a contract, their house is at 123 Main Street, and we need to get their permit as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. There's a whole team of really, really incredible folks, most of whom actually also come from the public sector as planners, um, who handle that. And then my team that's kind of closely tied and we overlap in some ways and collaborate daily is this more zoomed out cities team mm-hmm. of how do we take a bird's eye view as to all the challenges that that mm-hmm. permit by permit team is happening? Mm-hmm. And how do we go into our toolbox of training local governments, working with local governments, sharing their best practices, working on um, feedback for folks like me in the state capitol who need to constantly polish these laws such that they're better used. Um, How do we put out guidance? How do we establish better internal bureaucratic processes Mm -hmm. with them that make government work better? Um, And so that was one of the really cool things that was attractive to me about kind of being like the founding member and kind of like creating this idea of what a city's team is is it's the kind of like strategy side of what is our long-term priority that's guided by how do we get permits in a like fast, reliable um, way that we can guarantee. Love um, it. Love it. And, and that kind of ties back to a lot of like the SB35 thinking mm-hmm. um, around there's a lot of value in many different directions to getting permits quickly, yeah. um, not least of which is taking out the unpredictability of it. 
Cool. Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's, and for listeners like Abodu, if you go to their website, it's probably abodu.com. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, and that is, you can go there, and they're, they're, they're these really nice um, houses, like prefab things that you like stick in your backyard. You know, yeah. like, it feels like it gets helicoptered in. I don't think it actually gets helicoptered and in. A crane. It a looks crane, like a helicopter. Crane, <laughs> crane, crane, yeah. Um, and so, and, and you place it back there, and it's nice because then you place it, and then you um, you pay whatever, 500000 bucks or something to put it back there. Much less, thankfully. Much yeah. less. Oh, uh, $200,000? Uh, yeah, we had... $300,000? Yeah, depend. we have three units, a studio, yeah. one bedroom, and a two-bedroom. Yeah. All in, it's on the website, so I'm not making this up. Yeah. I would say it's like between two and 280. Two and 280, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and you, oh. can, you can add fancy things to it if yeah. you want, but... 250K, you put it back there, and then it makes money over time, and then you're like, great. I, and so it's just like, um, so that's cool. And then hearing you talk about the city side is really interesting, which is like, okay, and you're like, okay, or whatever, your main metric is just like, okay... The, you got the permitting team who's down there doing stuff every day, just like trying to get stuff through the system. And they're like, this is annoying. This is annoying. This is annoying. And then you're also working with the policy side, whatever. And you're like, these are the annoyances that they're having. And then you are kind of like long-term strategically thinking about how to make the whole thing for both the current on the ground thing, but also in the one to five year future smoother. Yeah. Right? And it's like, where do, the way that I like to think of it is when we're having a problem, right? Think of it as like this city process is stick in some way and we need to diagnose it and we need to make it better. So it's like, okay, interview that city staff, interview our planning team, figure out what broke, figure out how many projects this touches. Is this constant among six different cities or is it only one specific mm-hmm. city? Um, go into our toolbox, 15 different things that we could do, all of which have different tales of, is this a short turnaround solution, long turnaround. Is it certain or uncertain? Is it require junior people or only VIPs? All of these considerations. And then we say, okay, the way that we solve this specific problem on this specific component that's holding up a huge number of our projects and would likely continue to is this answer or this answer or this answer. Um, Another thing that I'd like to about just going back to the like backyard living and ADUs component of it is that I think that the approach that Abodu has and a lot of other companies in the space, right? It's not unique to Abodu in this mm-hmm. sense. So I think we do it best is um, this idea again of like, where do you place in your patchwork of housing solutions, the retrofitting suburbia component, mm-hmm. right? And particularly the places that are most housing starved and that have the urban typology of lots that you could build a backyard home in also are overwhelmingly um, exclusively homeownership and are overwhelmingly expensive and also have good air quality, have good public school districts, all of these other things. And so how do you make it such that you can have rental options in those neighborhoods? You can have the ability to live in that neighborhood without owning a 4,000 square foot home on a half acre of land, right? And that also continues out to if you have an aging family member and the alternative is sending them to an assisted living facility mm-hmm. for five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand dollars a month. What is a solution that keeps that person or helps that person stay closer to their community, closer to their family and that social safety net in a way that's more economical? Um, and you see all of these different use cases again of like what going back to your question at the beginning, what does your ideal city look like and how does it work? Mine is that if you have someone who leaves an abusive marriage and wants to keep their kid in the same school district, their financial situation is different, but they want to be able to stay in their neighborhood. What are the options for that person, right? You have an aging family member or someone who becomes very, very ill. Mm-hmm. What are the opportunities for, what are the housing, um, I don't know, what's the housing solution yeah. for that situation? Um, and I think that ADUs fit this really, really great niche 
not only in that they create a broader diversity and scope of housing options in places that don't have them right now, almost by definition, but further, ADUs are just really fast turnaround. Mm -hmm. And so even if ADUs are only going to be, you know, throw out a number 2%, 5%, 15% of our overall housing supply moving forward, right? Everyone has their own different theory. It's not going to be 100%, yeah. right? But they are relatively cheap. You don't need a giant developer. Um, your options for financing are much easier to access than having like leveraging massive Wall Street capital <laughs> on your giant pro forma. And it takes many years and it's very fragile. And also you can get it done start to finish within, you know, five months to yeah. a year. And that's not the case for other housing solutions. And so it's not just a suburban versus urban, but it's also a short term versus long term. It's homeowner driven by developer driven. Mm -hmm. It's all of these different things. And the final outcome in all cases is still you have these underdeveloped but not vacant areas that we can in an attractive, affordable and dignified way have a lot more housing in. Love it. Yeah, that's great. I think and it's uh that seems like a good future and a better, and it's, yeah, it's like it's the speed thing. It just makes me think of the speed thing. Hey, let's make this faster. The other thing, it's just you talking about how the city's team does stuff. So you are this amazing spreadsheet wizard. Um, and I have a, I have an internal company wiki that I just called the toolbox. The toolbox. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you don't need to open source the whole toolbox, but open source how you create toolboxes. I think it'd be awesome. So, so I think I want to transition. So it's at like, the policy side is amazing. Um, thank you for doing that work. Honestly, that's great. Uh, the Abodu thing sounds great. And just like seeing this reality where there's a lot of just ADUs around the world, like or in, in these more suburban places seems great. I want to ask maybe one final question here, which is, I think that you have this cool kind of agentful action oriented mindset around both creating the toolbox and these spreadsheets um, and also just like believing in this better future and doing the good work to make it happen. Mm. How did you, what kickstarted that for you as a kid or in your life? And how did you start to get on this like reinforcing feedback loop where you felt agentful in the world? That's a very good question. Uh, I'm not sure it comes from exclusively good qualities, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you're a little like, uh, yeah, I think like generally questioning authority will get you a lot of the way there. Okay, like great. seeing that, like, like, I don't know. There there are a few people who are just sort of like anointed from above God-given experts who have power and earn it and should have it forever. And like, I don't know. I think that like one of the, th the biggest lessons that I learned that I took away from working around a lot of politicians, frankly, um, was just the fact that like a lot of people behind the scenes are doing it by the seat of their pants. Yeah. And like, they, like everyone's kind of figuring it out as they go. And it really sort of like humanizes and demystifies the idea of power. And if you think of power and agency as closely tied to each other, you kind of see like, oh, people who you know behind the scenes are not prepared come off prepared. Mm -hmm. How does that make you look at problems differently, right? Mm -hmm. People who... You would think based on the, the press that they get or an expert in something, you actually know the mechanics of how what they did is not actually that big, right? And, and it kind of like, it gives you a different perspective, I guess, on like where you fit into that. And you're like, oh, like I could have an idea. I could work hard at it. I could be curious and I could be just focused on solving a problem. I can, you can get a lot of the way there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you can kind of cut through a lot of the bullshit of yeah. like, what is the, um, the theater versus what is the substance? Yeah. Um, and a lot of how I learned that was just being around a lot of the theater and seeing like <laughs> yeah, what it was. Yeah. Um, I also think that like, and again, I mean, you can say it's a good quality or bad quality, but like, 
I, you know, I think of like my time throughout college, mm-hmm. I was not a great student, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it was kind of yeah. like, I was drawn to the things I liked. Mm-hmm. I like didn't throw myself into the ones that I didn't yeah. like, you kind of like in a, a weird way, like exert your own agency in that mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming out of school, I didn't have access to the like, clear paths right mm-hmm. there are there are a lot of people who are like okay you're on the fast track to the fancy job or you're on the conveyor belt to this thing and i was like you know i moved to san francisco i was kind of doing this like research job that was about to run out of funding i met this guy in a diner when i was working on my architecture portfolio mm-hmm. and he needed a junior drafts person mm-hmm. and like that was my first architecture job <laughs> yeah nice and i think that in a way there is a lot of freedom that comes from being required just to operate in the world to like exert that agency sooner. Right. I think a lot of people don't really have any kind of, you know, either personal or professional setbacks until Mm -hmm. much later. And so this idea that like, Oh, the world was on the conveyor belt for me. And now I have to have agency for the first time at 32. I was like, well, I didn't have that many options out of college. So I kind of had to have agency like at 22. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the last thing that I'll say is that, I was never really laser focused on one specific field and the view and vision of it. Um, I I wasn't like, I want to be an architect so I can do the theater of architecture. And so I was like, okay, I'm driven, drawn to architecture for a number of reasons. I throw myself into architecture and I'm meeting with clients and I'm drafting plans and I'm doing renderings and I'm surveying buildings and I'm getting permits. And then you're kind of like, oh, there are a lot of problems that I've uncovered through learning and like apprenticing in this thing. Mm -hmm. And then you can be like, okay, I'm just going to stomp my feet that these problems exist. Or you can ask yourself, why do those problems exist and how would someone solve them? And I had this big moment where I'm like, oh, wow. I went into architecture because I wanted to like learn about and contribute to the built environment. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned that it's like policymakers and lawyers doing that, right? Like it's actually not architects in most cases. And architects are like coloring within the lines that a bunch of policymakers and lawyers drew. And sometimes they take away your pen away from you. So like, (laughs) and it takes 10 years to make it happen. Yeah. And so I was, I, I kind of went through this like personal realization early on where I was like, Oh, how would I continue chasing the things that drew me to architecture Mm -hmm. if I wasn't sentimental about what field I was in? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of leads you into local government and leads you into state government. And one of the things that was really gratifying to me, partly maybe because I had the agency to to do that and also just different circumstances led me there, Mm -hmm. was that um, I realized that like, you know, working on housing and land use policy with a boss that let me be creative and somewhat ambitious and autonomous and supported that and was aligned with that, scratched my itch for architecture way more than working as an architect ever did. Um, And I kind of think of this next chapter that I'm on is like, okay, you go from architecture to seeing what the problems are and then changing them on paper. And then you, you, you see from changing them on paper that the next set of problems is actually are they being implemented correctly? And so I think that like for me, I don't know where it came from, but there was this agency and like being focused on the solving of the problems rather than the theater of what type of professional you are. Um, And it was a neat, I guess, perspective because you have very few people writing housing policy that have memorized a building code or a planning code before, Mm -hmm. right? Or you have very few people implementing policy, knowing why things were written the way that they were and what ways were intended for you to interpret versus not. Um, 
it was very hard and probably sent me back in other ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like I went to working in government politics, not understanding politics or government, yeah. like in a lot of ways, yeah. but you learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think treating those chapters as I still had this very much drilled into me just with the pedagogy of architecture as like the way that you learn is by apprenticing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like I thought of myself as apprenticing under an elected official or yeah. apprenticing at a startup uh, or apprenticing as opposed to doing like the the book learning or the fake until you make it or whatever that ends up being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really a shame that there are a lot of fields that don't have drilled into their pedagogy and culture the idea of apprenticeship. Because I think that is actually really powerful regardless of what the the craft or the um, of the work is. Yeah, I love it. It sounds like, so A, it sounds like yeah, you were, and I was a bad student as well. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, ugh, sorry, uh, sorry teachers. But it's like, yeah, you're like, you're in school, you're like, this is kind of boring, you know, or whatever. You're like, I'm not really into the subject. And so you kind of like tap out. Um, but then if you're into something, whether it's for me with my work or you with your work, mm-hmm. you're like, once you get into it, oh my God, you're super into it. And so um, that's amazing. I, what I'm hearing too is that like, and yet, I think for me too, it was, I mean, I'll, I'll be like fully transparent yeah. here too. I think for me, it wasn't as much of like the stubborn, like, I'm not interested in it. Mm-hmm. I am like, you know, let's just hope it works out. I think too, like, you know, I just had a lot of really, really rough, like personal setbacks mm-hmm. during college that mm-hmm. made that time like a really miserable time. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was also just like, it, it's hard to get excited about things yeah. and it's like, okay, I'm doing the best I can, but like you, f- you find yourself gravitating towards certain things. And then you also see how your GPA in college isn't the be all end all, you know? Yeah. And like, that's another thing that I really appreciated working in government and around a lot of politicians and people who like from the outside are perceived as like super powerful. You like meet people in those positions and one, they're of all ages, right? Which I think is a, a, of extraordinary value that we don't get in a lot of fields. But also you're like, oh, you were a real person who actually messed up your life a few times before you got to where you are. <laughs> and going back to the kind of like just humanizing of like, you know, young people always need to be reminding themselves that like it's okay to mess up yeah. and like it's okay to have a setback and like you can change careers, you can do a lot of things and like people have done it before. Mm-hmm. Like you're not the first one to try that and it has worked out for a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I love that. And thank you for the vulnerability there. I think, yeah, it reminds me of my mom died two years ago during COVID. And so it was just like, and I didn't really get anything. Yeah, it was sad, but like my mom, I didn't really get anything done, you know, for those, you know, and so, and that's okay. And that's how your brain is wired to work. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And that's okay. You yeah. know? And so, and so that, that's an okay thing. And then all those things you said too, about, I think there's a lot of things about a way to kind of live this agentful path is to kind of be anti the paths that we're given and anti the the structures and anti the identity of being a specific thing. It's like, you just going to go through and like explore the world um, and kind of make, build your own path. Um, That feels like a powerful thing. Yeah. I think, I think like trying to become an expert and a specialist in a problem has served me much better than becoming an expert or specialist Mm -hmm. in a topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like it's, it's a small and subtle distinction, but being like, I'm an expert and getting permits in a broken system versus I'm an expert in figuring out why the system is broken, yeah. right? Like that, that, that's, that's to me the distinction that drives more interesting and sometimes untraditional like career changes and all those different pieces. Yeah. Being problem focused, not uh, profession focused or whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So is there any other places that folks could, should check out your stuff online? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I, I so at Annie Fryman on Twitter, uh, I, you know, uh, I'm on that a lot, trying to make things that are happening in policy and government more accessible to people right outside of it. Um, 
Abodu is a great just website and kind of cool thing to be following. I think that prefab ADU space, particularly in California, is really, really fascinating right now in terms of where we fit into the broader patchwork of housing solutions. Abodu.com is the website there. Um, keep your eyes peeled in the coming weeks, probably, for like more blog posts written by me and my team, um, Abodu Cities, uh, about some of the kind of like policy, whether through legislative or bureaucratic intervention at cities, just kind of the way that we're investing as a company on making a lot of parts of government work better in a way that we benefit from, but also like we think that we're the best player in that space. And so by fixing things, like maybe it will help it for other people. But I think that, you know, that should actually be an equalizer and we're competitive for many other, other reasons. Um, and yeah, I don't know what else. That um, sounds great. Yeah, feel free to get in touch. My DMs are DM, open. DM, um, DM. Yeah. I'm friendly, I promise. <laughs> She's nice. Yeah, no, and that's great, Annie. I think that I'm, I'm really actually excited to see, A, I love the mindset that like just making things lower friction and easier, it will help Abodu, but it also helps everybody. It's like, let's just make this great. Um, and then I think I'm, I'll personally, you should DM me the um, uh, blog post when you write them because I'll just, I'm excited to see them. And it sounds like it's part of this open sourcing the Annie Fryman playbook well. uh, thing, <laughs> uh, which I'm excited to, to see a little bit more of. Um, so with that, thank you so much for coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you and for all the housing that you're creating um, in you. the world. It takes a village. It no no a village. pun intended. <laughs> you plus others. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Reese Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.